Welcome to the Local Waste Music Podcast, where we capture the sights, sounds, and smells of the Columbus, Ohio music scene. Now, here's your hosts, Pat and Linda. Hi, and welcome to Local Waste Music Podcast. I'm your host, Linda. And I'm your host, Pat. How are you doing this week, Hi, Pat. Uh, you know what? I'm doing... I'm doing pretty damn good today. Oh, nice. Yeah. Okay. I'm waking up, had my, had my coffee, and I'm, I'm ready to go. Nice. How about you? I am doing extraordinarily well. Why is that? Well, I'll tell you in a minute, but first I want to ask you, <laughs> what have you been doing this week? Well, this week, uh, I didn't really watch a documentary. Um, what I did is I watched a movie that's centered around music here in Columbus. The movie uh, we went to go see together was Poser. And the backdrop for this movie was all of Columbus and the Columbus music scene. And there were a lot of great uh, local artists in it as well. Shout out to uh, our friend Vicky, yes. who was in Son Sons of, of, Son of Dribble. Son of Dribble. Yeah, so it was a really good movie. Yeah, so uh, what you been reading, Pat? Oh, I haven't been reading a whole lot this week because we have been super busy with our band, uh, Betty Machete and the Angry Cougars. We have been pra- oh, yeah. practicing like fiends. Uh, we're recording this uh, this weekend and hopefully going to uh, uh, bash out a whole record of 14 songs. Yeah. But also... We have been uh, asked. I think. I think important papers have been misfiled at. Uh, yeah, Com- someone didn't listen. Com- <laughs> Comfest headquarters. We're playing Comfest uh, this Friday evening on the main stage, so that's huge for us. So we're going to try to re- um, record this weekend and then prepare for Comfest the following weekend. So we're super busy. Yeah. So yeah. So you're if you're around uh, on uh, Friday, June twenty fourth, come on out to Comfest. Yeah. Um, we'll be playing there. I want to remind our listeners that they can listen for the mystery word. Mystery. That we drop somewhere in the podcast. Mm -hmm. And it's a word that they can take to our sponsor. This week it's Lost Weekend Records. Yes, it is. And once they do that, if they're the first person to go into the store and tell them the mystery word, they win a prize. Yay. Yes, and it's going to be filled, a bag filled with stuff. Um, Some records, some magazines, some t-shirts, and just all sorts of stuff like that. Um, chock full of yummy goodness. Yes, chock full. So um, be the first person to go to Lost Weekend Records with the mystery word and you'll win the prize. Yes, sir. Linda, can you tell some people out there how they can find the visual component to our podcast today? Certainly. We're on Facebook, Instagram, at Twitter, at Local Waste Music, and uh, we'll be posting after our podcast videos and flyers and links to other stuff uh, on our Facebook page, so please take a look at that. Pat. Yes. Why don't you tell us about the guests today? Oh, we have two great guests today, Linda, Craig Regala, who started Data Panic Records, and Tony Barnett, who started uh, the Columbus Edge and Moo Magazine. But before we get to that interview, Linda, let's hear a word from our sponsor. You know, baby, it's such a perfect night. What do you say we curl up, turn on the old-fashioned radio? And get all romantic. Oh, that sounds like a great evening to me. Let me see. How do I turn on this old-fashioned thing? Oh, I see right here. How's this, baby? Um, 
not really what I had in mind. Oh, okay. Well, let me try another station on this old wireless. Ooh, how about this one? A rock. Strike two, lover boy. Let me try my hand at this radio. This yeah. presents and ah, this is more like it. Let the smooching commence. Hi. When I'm in Columbus. I always make sure to go to Lost Weekend Records, located at 2960 North High Street in Columbus, Ohio. They have jazz, rock, hip-hop, blues, pop, country, every kind of music you'd want. And remember, the more you spend, the more you save. Lost Weekend has music for every mood. Oh, yeah. And we're back. Linda, we have two fantastic guests today, both having a profound impact on the Columbus music history. Um, first off, we have Craig Regala. Hi, Craig. Hey, Pat. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing very well. You know me. I'm your, I'm your turbo lover, buddy. I ain't nobody else. <laughs> and we have Tony Barnett. Hi, Tony. Hi, Pat. Hi, Linda. Hello. Thanks for coming here, Tony. Um, we are happy to have you on Zoom. This is our first experiment of a person uh, out from out of town. You're, you're in Chicago, right, Tony? That's right. Thank you for making yourself available. Craig Regala started a magazine called Crocodile in the late 1980s. Running for four issues, Crocodile pu published poetry, zine reviews, cartoons, record reviews, interviews, and apparently had an ongoing beef with QFM Radio due to its ban of playing punk rock music. Craig also sang for at least four bands that left evidence of their existence. Barge, Frat Boy, Fork, and Clocked In. In the late 1980s, Craig founded Data Panic Records, releasing around 15 records and CDs between 1989 and 1993. Those releases created a stir in Columbus and the world because Data Panic released the very first records by New Bomb Turks, Thomas Jefferson Slave Apartments, Monster Truck 5, Greenhorn, Gaunt, and many others. Craig also released two influ influential CDs, one compiling the 7-inch singles and the other compiling all-new tracks by legendary Columbus bands like Pika Huss, Girly Machine, G-Spot Tornadoes, Stupid Fucking Hippie, V3, and several others. In the meantime, Craig found time to be a writer, a contributor, contributing editor, and secretary of defense for Moo Magazine. Which leads us, leads us, Linda, to our second guest, Tony Barnett. From 1991 to 1993, Tony was the managing editor of the Columbus Edge, a local music magazine that featured both national acts like Nirvana, Soul Asylum, Corrosion of Conformity, Helmet, and others, but also the Columbus Edge featured local bands such as New Bomb Turks, Pet UFO, Earwig, Our Flesh Party, Martyr Colony, Moody Jackson, and many others. Tony then switched gears to start Moo Magazine, which ran from 1994 to 1997. Frequent listeners uh, to local Waste Music podcasts know Moo Magazine because we give away an original copy of Moo Magazine with each mystery word prize. Mystery. 
mystery. As the publisher of Moo, Tony secured interviews with major 90s acts like Pavement, Jesus Lizard, Super Suckers, Guided by Voices, Wilco, Super Chunk, Jawbreaker, John Spencer Blues Explosion, The Cramps, and many others. Moo also ran generous spotlight features on local Columbus bands such as The Yips, Bassholes, Dog Rocket, Econo Thugs, Watershed, Haynes Boys, Gasahol, Evolution Control Committee, Howlin' Maggie, Action Family, Mike Rep, Flying Saucers, Bush League All-Stars, Miss May 66, Scrawl, Moviola, Harry Pat Band, Girly Machine, Monster Zero, Earwig, Wolfgang Parker, Gaunt, Thomas Jefferson Slave Apartments, Martyr Colony, and New Bomb Turks, and more. Linda, join me in giving a warm welcome to Tony Barnett and Craig Regala. Welcome. Thanks for joining us today. My first question is for Tony. What inspired you to start the Columbus Edge and then Moo Magazine? Uh, you know, as a uh, kid growing up in the 70s, I always liked uh, to read different music publications from rock scene to Rolling Stone, but uh, my favorite was Cream. I mean, I loved Cream magazine. And, um, but I never thought about writing or publishing or anything like that uh, until I met Sam Mataro, who did the um, stage magazine in uh, Columbus. And I started writing a little bit for him. But then I got the bug and I just wanted to start something on my own. How do you start a magazine? Like, what are, you, what are the steps? <laughs> it was very difficult. I uh, got a little bit of seed money from a friend and then started to search out advertisers. And in the beginning, it wasn't uh, as bad as I thought it was going to be, because back then uh, we could secure um, tobacco and also alcohol money because the uh, rules and regulations for printed materials were still pretty loose back then. Are, are you talking uh, about advertising money? Yes, advertising money. That's correct. Okay. To keep it to keep it rolling, uh, but then eventually, um, uh, some congressmen, congresswomen, uh, came down hard on that rule, and also the governing body that takes care of magazines. Uh, they they came up with rules that you had to definitely verify that your reading audience was at the age where they could even purchase alcohol and cigarettes so really yeah how, how so do you it got even, a little bit more difficult how do you even establish something like that how do you show uh, there are diff- there's a uh <clears throat> an overall government an overall committee uh organization that um looks that um takes care of all that that looks at the different magazines and what you have to do is you have to report you have to uh, report that information to these people. And um, what you have to do is spend a lot of money on silly little marketing and um, demographic, inf- you know, that gathers dif- different demographic information and so on and so forth. And, you know, that's what the big magazines did. I mean, that's, you know, yeah. if you had money, you did that. Right. And since we couldn't do that, I mean, we were pretty much a fanzine that looked fancier for some reason. I, you know, I know it wasn't just a staple. Right. A few pieces of paper put together. It wasn't a Xerox. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't a Xerox, <laughs> which I love those things. I loved fanzines, but that's not where I was going. So anyway, discovering a body you had to report to. And of course we didn't have the money to report to that, to take those 
measures to report to the organization. So we lost a big chunk of change. I, I noticed that, like, uh, and I actually wrote this down. I'm not doing this from memory, but uh, issue number eight of Moo Magazine, it has Guided by Voices on the cover. Uh, that was the last time Budweiser, uh, Bud, Bud Beer was a, an advertiser. It had a huge back page ad, and I noticed that it just never was there again. Um, yes. And, uh, and I guess that's why. Yeah, back in the uh, day when it was the Columbus Edge, we regularly had uh, Budweiser on the back cover. Plus, um, there was a tobacco company that had a they they kind of sponsored a uh, uh, a feature that was in the magazine every month, and okay. they couldn't do that anymore as well because of the rules and regulations that were being put in place. Okay. So, what was the uh, difference between Columbus Edge? and Moo Magazine. So what was Columbus Edge like? Well, Columbus Edge, uh, I had different partners at that time. Uh, Carla Nazera and Joel Smith. Joel was the graphics guy and Carla uh, was uh, taking care of the, we had like an arts section, a little bit more highbrow, um, theater, dance, that sort of thing uh, in the beginning. And uh, it was okay. I mean, we, we all wanted a publication that really, reflected all of Columbus's art. Uh, you know, that includes music, dance, theater, what have you. And um, we, started, we, we did that in the beginning and that was fine. That was okay. But we felt, I felt, I can't speak for the others, but I felt very restricted by that mm -hmm. only because there were so many politics at play, mm -hmm. uh, even in the Columbus art scene. Uh, especially when you got up to maybe a, a, a certain level of people that, you know, that um, might perform at the major art centers at that time. What do you and, mean? What do you mean, Tony, when you say politics involved? Oh, if you write about us, we'll give you this amount of money to advertise. Or if you write a good review, we'll do this or we'll do that. And um, it, it started getting a little weird. And also Carla and Joel, I think, um, wanted to move on to other things. I know Carla eventually moved on to Alternative Press because she married uh, um, uh, Rob Cherry. And um, so it was my opportunity to change things up a little bit. And I was really wanting more of a rock magazine or in rock in the large context, because like I said before, I kind of wanted to do my own version of Cream Magazine. It never really played out, but in the back of my mind, that's kind of what I was shooting for. And, um, you know, I don't know if Cream was even um, a factor in your lives, but like I said, growing up in the 70s, it definitely wasn't mine. And I just loved what they did. And yeah. um, I, I, remember, I remember Cream, Tony, and I, I definitely yeah. read it all the time. And, I love the funny captions that they had on pictures and and the record reviews. Would you think uh, did, did did Craig uh, write for the Columbus Edge as well as Moo? Uh, I think no. Craig came in uh, around Moo. I'm pretty okay. sure, and it was great. Craig was definitely like the injection of like your Lester, your Lester Bangs. 
Uh, you, I was about ready to say that. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to steal your thunder. Let me switch uh, it to Craig real quick, Tony. Um, yeah, because, because Craig, you started your own magazine um, with some other people uh, back in the late '80s, if I remember right, called Crocodile. And a, a former uh, or an earlier uh, local waste podcast guest, Shirley Tobias, was gracious enough to lend me her four copies wow. of Crocodile. She's got them super organized and and gave gave me the access to all those. Uh, tell us a little bit about Crocodile and why why it was started. You know, at that time, the, the whole outgrowth of the fanzine thing, which I have read really kind of piggybacked on the science fiction fanzine stuff from the 60s and late 50s. And the format became, the whole Xerox format was very inexpensive. And really, Crocodile was based in... Larry's the bar the people there okay <laughs> so that's why there was various people writing about things from from a position that just wasn't mine yeah uh, and we did the issues and really where data panic started um, was there was supposed to be a, that that initial data panic single was going to be in the last issue of crocodile and I just couldn't get I just couldn't get it together because oh. Because um, I just wasn't really that organized. I didn't have Tony's facility for direction. And everybody needs to know he was working a full-time job the whole time he did move. <laughs> yeah. It is yeah. all volunteer work. It was like, yeah. it's and the Columbus Alive basically piggybacked off that model. Okay. You know? Yeah. Uh, well, reading through Crocodile, and, and if, if it's okay with you, we'd like to maybe scan a couple sure. uh, pages of it. Yeah. It's pretty eclectic. There's like, like, like I mentioned, there's poetry, there's cartoons, there's some... I guess I would just call them essays that people wrote uh, about various things that they were thinking about. And, and it does, now that you mention it, it makes perfect sense that Larry's might have been the, yeah. the epicenter of it because it seems like that's the kind of magazine people were reading. And some of the covers even looked like they were, what's that thing where you have wood etching and you, you press them, uh, I don't know, yeah. carvings. and uh, just It's very, yeah. very interesting art. Um, how, how did you get those people to, to get involved? I'm Craig Regala. <laughs> <laughs> Even back then, <laughs> I uh, what was really interesting and and a locus of uh, focus was I worked in Magnolia Thunderpussy, oh. and that was a that was like a record stores at that time were very important for communication. Did you work at the North? I one? worked at the North one. Okay, and I think I, I, someone else mentioned you worked with uh, Mark Spurgeon there. Uh, I don't know. You know who ran it was um, Ellen Saunders. Sanders ran it, and she was like the heart and soul of the place. Okay. So I think when when she moved on, when I left and she moved on, Chuck was like, "It's really kind of too much of a hassle to find some other people that are competent." Yeah. Because everybody wanted to work in a record store because they wanted to sit there and listen to records. They didn't, they didn't want to do the like, like Arturo De Leon says, like I'm the rock and roll librarian. You know, I just put stuff away, talk about stuff. <laughs> But uh, yeah, there's some there's some really good people and good things going on with Crocodile, and um, you know I I uh, also grew up on Cream, and although my taste was much more mainstream, a huge influence on me was Forced Exposure magazine. Yeah, uh, and then Gerard from Homestead's Conflict. Cosley, Cosloy. Yeah, those are big. Those are big ones for me. Okay. So I'm kind of like a you know, like a C plus version of that stuff. My writing was <laughs> often kind of, you know, 
conceptually lifted. Well, we will publish some of those or print some of those on our Facebook and Instagram page so people can kind of see yeah. them. Because I don't know how, how many did you print to those things? How many, how, how much access did, did people have to it? To what? To, I mean, how many copies of, of Crocodile would you have printed? Oh, God, not, you know, maybe a hundred. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they were like this. The thing is, I sent them to, I sent them to like, I sent them to people that I knew through the record thing. So people knew about it. Like yeah. people like, yeah, that's in the bathroom in wherever New York. That was like, you know, <laughs> you know, in Chicago, which is one thing I'd say about, about Moo, especially is sometimes uh, a prophet is without honor in his own land where people just took, kind of took it for granted because he did it. Tony took that thing all over. Right. There's guys in Chicago that were like diehard Moo guys. Right. Yeah, and guys that are professional writers now, and, and there are people that would write letters to Moo that were from like Portland, all over, yeah, California, yeah. Portland, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Tony, how did you go about distributing, um, but either the Columbus Edge or Moo? How, how did how did that even happen? Uh, I just make sure to try to get it in the hands of the people that were actually uh, in the industry. You know, uh, if you're setting up uh, an interview with. I don't know if you're setting up an interview with John Spencer at that time, you want to make sure you got a, the story to his publicist, to Matador, you know, to all those different people that were under the John Spencer umbrella. And um, what little money we had, I spent on making sure that those got out to different record labels, different, you know, people in the industry. Plus, we also would, um, I'd either personally drive around for a few days to a bunch of different states, dropping it off. Mm -hmm. And to the places I couldn't get to, um, we had a little um, store unit on Fifth Avenue that I'd go in, box them up, mail them out, UPS, uh, uh, to different record stores, you know, and places that uh, would carry our magazine. Plus, I was very... Um, focused on getting it to different colleges in the Midwest. I um, was not, uh, well, I should say for full disclosure purposes, I, I was fortunate enough to write for Moo, and you were, you were gracious enough to allow, <laughs> I don't know how old I was, but you were gracious enough to allow me to, to contribute because I, uh, I remember seeing Moo, I, I think I saw it the second issue, and I remember thinking, like, this is a magazine I want to write for, and I could do it. And I remember I submitted mm -hmm. a a review of the of an undertones reissue or something and and to my astonishment it was published you know i just i just mailed it to you or something and then i started coming to meetings and i remember you talking about driving to chicago or wherever and dropping things off and i just thought wow that what commitment to drive you know i'm, I'm assuming a, a trunk full of magazines or, or uh, copies of the magazine to to chicago just to distribute them yourself um, is that what you did Yes, exactly. Sometimes I would be on the road for a few days a week, just make sure it, it was getting to different places. And sometimes I didn't sleep a whole lot. <laughs> I mean, it was, uh, there were people say, yeah, you're, you're, you're Batman. You never sleep. And I'm like, <laughs> well, you know, if, if I'm going to do this, it's, well, you know, it's got to be done. It's not yeah. like I can hire somebody to do it for me because even though, uh, Moo was maybe a, a step up, above a Xerox fanzine, uh, I think there were a lot of people who, there were two groups of people. There were people that thought we were a joke and there were other people who thought maybe we were bigger than actually than in reality. So, yeah. Um, so uh, Craig got people to write for his 
uh, fanzine because he's Craig. Um, <laughs> Tony, you had people uh, like Pat and Craig and Zach Bodish, Chip, Chip Midnight, Brian Varney, James Hutter, John Stickley, Don Parker, Heather Rolls, Royce Roll, Ch- Chad Van Wagner, a whole bunch of people were writing. How did you get people to write? Did it happen just like Pat said, where he's like, I want to write for it? Or did you have to solicit people to write for it? There was a little bit of both. In the beginning, um, Jerry Demiller was very instrumental in um, handling all that. When people approached me about writing, I would just talk to them about music, see if they really knew their stuff, which, believe me, I was I, I was no expert. Craig's a walking encyclopedia, me, and not so much. Well, Tony, uh, I yeah. think the, the thing was, wh- when you wanted to have more of that rock presence, I showed up on your doorstep with a cutoff flannel and cowboy boots yes. saying, I want to do a monster magnet feature. <laughs> yeah. So he was, he was, he was rubbing his hands on the thighs of his jeans. Like, you know, <laughs> he's doing that right now. He's doing that right now. Right now. <laughs> this guy's on coke. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, no, he, Craig is like walking encyclopedia. I mean, he's, you know, amazing. And but the, for, for in regards to people writing for the magazine, I would sit down and talk with them about that. But to me, it, it was like if anybody could write about music, it would be the people that were really into it. Like somebody, I mean, and I'm she didn't write for the magazine, but let's say, for example, you mentioned her before. Shirley Tobias is another person. It's yeah. just a walking encyclopedia, yeah. you know. God and uh, yeah, and pretty much, I thought that. Anybody with a that strong of opinion could could formulate something. I wasn't real. I, would, I wasn't looking for English majors. I wasn't looking for professional writers, so to speak. Uh, in the beginning, that's what it was with Jerry because he would get people, great people like Laura DeMarco. And um, but later on, it was just like, yeah, this is really cool what this kid's saying. Take for example, Chip Midnight. Chip had such a great ear for a certain kind of music like he he was into that whole rage against the machine and uh different bands like that plus he uh, had a great knowledge of like just the classic strip mall kind of like poison oh, yeah. motley crew he knew that that stuff well and if you're almost too well well it's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> mood didn't cover a lot of that because it wasn't necessary right yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I just remember you basically letting us come to come to the magazine with ideas. Like I re- I remember yes. a meeting that you would say, "Hey, what's what? Has anybody have got a new idea that they want to do?" And I I remember raising my hand and I said, "I got five ideas," and then you mm-hmm. said, "You can have two of them," <laughs> or something like that, you know. And mm-hmm. uh, just but again, just so generous. Like here I here I was just this snotty nosed kid and and uh, with enthusiasm, I guess is all I had. And oh yeah, get out there and kill them, kid. <laughs> right. I mean, you let me <laughs> go get them, kid. You let me write about <laughs> yeah. the Elvis Brothers for God's sakes, and yeah. uh, a band that I love from Chicago. And uh, I drove up to Chicago to interview them for Moo, uh, and just fantastic. And here, here again, here I was. I was just someone that saw the magazine, and and uh, I remember coming to the first meeting and saying, "Do you have any copies of issue number one? Because I don't have that one." And you go, I, yeah, we got some in the back. And uh, gave me a copy, so I completed my collection, which thank- <laughs> thankfully now we have for mystery prizes. I have a, I have kind of a funny little story about the writers. Let's hear it. Um, I kind of brought Brian Varney in to a couple yeah. things, but Brian, I wrote a review of like an early 
kind of early heavy instrumental thing that was kind of the post hardcore thing it was just a very heavy like melvinsy thing and it was instrumental okay and i wrote sometimes you need to pull out your eyes in order to see and varney <laughs> wrote a response going like what's this fake faulkner bullshit <laughs> i go chief just write for us then just come on down right you know and he did yeah well yeah, I, varney's another great example I, brian uh actually won a contest i'm all about contests everybody in case you don't know um brian won run a, won a contest um, that we ran in Moo Magazine, something where people would write in answers to a question. And um, I didn't have a car, so I hand-delivered the prize on my bicycle. And it was some vinyl record. And uh, and I gave it to him. I remember knocking on the door, and Brian answered the door, Brian Varney, and I handed it to him. I said, hey, you won the won the prize. And he looked at it, at the record, and said, hmm, too bad you can't tape over vinyl. <laughs> <laughs> and I've always remembered that. I've always remembered that. Um, so anyways, hey, yeah. One, hey, Pat, I do want to say one more thing. Though. Sure. Uh, it wasn't just the writers. It was also the graphic designers. Oh, the that lady that did all your layout stuff. Uh, well, actually, that was uh, Rudy Pospisil oh, really? uh, at one point. Yeah. And uh, another uh, guy, Brian Huber, uh, and there were some other great designers, Keith Novicki. I mean, mm -hmm. it was just, it was like a P, it was like people coming to me about writing and designing and editing and things they couldn't do in their real life because nobody was letting them do it. You know, like Keith, for example, had a normal graphics job, but he didn't have an outlet to do maybe something more creative that could get out to a number of people. Yeah, there were some very unique layouts and fonts used in yes. many Moo magazines. <laughs> some uh, worked, some didn't. <laughs> <laughs> some were a little hard to, on the eyes to read. The, the circle? Yeah, the printed circle. Or like really tiny font. Sometimes you have to pull your eyes out to see. <laughs> I, blame, I blame Ray, Ray Gunn. One of the reasons why I wanted to start Moo, I talked about cream, but also it was because if you picked up um, let's just call it an alternative music magazine back in the nineties. It was, it was the same review. Mm. I mean, if everybody liked, if, if a tastemaker liked one band, then you pick up a magazine and be like, everybody liked that band or everybody hated that yeah. band. And I couldn't stand that. And in the nineties, it got so bad. It was, it was ridiculous. Yeah. It's almost like somebody was printing out a press kit and they would write reviews you know, for the, the press kit. I, I'm, I don't have my finger necessarily on the pulse of everything but um there's a magazine called viva la rock um that i actually mm -hmm. like their coverage they really cover my sweet spot which is like 77 punk rock and power pop and um oh, they they you know they'll have like generation x on the cover which is to me just mind-blowing but but their reviews are very suspect um everything is an eight or nine oh, or ten and yeah. it's just like oh my god everything isn't great come mm -hmm. on uh, well, you know, I was talking to Nick Schultz about this. There's, there's plenty of C rec C plus records that I like. Yeah, there's a B minus band that I absolutely adore. But I'm not, I'm not telling everybody to go out and buy the Bebop Deluxe catalog. Yeah, right. But you know, yeah, yeah. you're right. A C meant average at one time. It didn't mean bad. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, and I'm like, you want a ten rating? Is this the first Jimi Hendrix record? Yeah. Right. You know. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Is this right. the first yeah. Clash record? Right. Yeah. Is, you know, is this? Straight out of Compton. There's nothing objective about uh, you know the those. whole the whole like we don't print magazines that don't give anything less than a six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think I've ever seen anything less than a seven, and it's mm. like that's yeah. just insane. And they're they're reviewing like forty records, and uh, unless they just pick records they like. Yeah, I don't mm. I don't think that's it, but maybe uh, maybe we did records 
people sent to Tony, and I wrote yeah. some stuff that I think is I yeah. would not have written nowadays. I did too. Yeah, <laughs> I did too. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, some I, I forget the name of the band, but a local local band, a dude came up to me like three years ago and said, "You really trashed me and moved." And I'm like, <laughs> oh. "Holy shit, that's 25 years ago!" <laughs> oh, and he's still wow. harboring the grudge. <laughs> Held a grudge. It was not an ugly confrontation. It was just like, "Yeah, you're the guy that gave me a, la- a bad review." Well, yeah, and then you went the other side with um, J- J- John Petrick. Oh right, which yeah, hated yeah. he hated everything. <laughs> yeah, he was good at writing indicative. That yeah. was his strong point. He did not write well positively. <laughs> he, he he wrote he wrote <laughs> reviews by way of audience assault. Is my memory? Like he would he would rate the band based on who was in the audience and and criticize the, the clothing or whatever <laughs> they wore. Yeah, um, that's what I remember. But yeah, he was he was fun to read. That's uh, people read it. That's mm-hmm. why. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I want to take this opportunity to on this subject apologize to the guys from Watershed because when I wrote the article about Watershed. It wasn't very nice, <laughs> and I think I just had, I don't know, cramps or something that day. <laughs> I don't know what happened, but I'm sorry. It should have been a better article. I remember I, I sent in a, cas- a cassette one time uh, of my band, and Craig reviewed it, <laughs> and he said, this band sounds like it has fun. I don't like fun. I, I, I find it. I find it counterproductive. What a dick! That guy right? was a dick. Did he, did he write that under Craig? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's Craig. Craig's name is on it. Yeah, I think I wrote under four names. Oh, yeah. pseudonyms? Yeah. One of them, and, and this is a story once again, when Tony was working at the Barnes & Noble, uh, there's a couple guys that went around to like, with a bell or something to the phones to chase out the evil spirits and stuff. So I developed a character called Kenny Henderson, which <laughs> hated hard rock. So I try to write it in a way that made it really appealing yeah. if you liked it. Yeah. Guitar solos are too long and it's noisy and he's not doing, you know, but I don't like this sweet picking and this isn't that kind of, the focus isn't what you need. Like, so, so Kenny, that was me. Is Kenny that like me. the roads, Kenny Henderson? Yeah. It's Kenny and Henderson. Yeah. The roads. It was a, it was a border story. Yeah. yeah. Bo- oh, oh yeah. Borders. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 It's now Yogi's bar. That something. was on Kenny and Henderson. Right. Yeah. Okay. Right. Right. Do you remember all your, your, uh, I remember, pseudonyms? I remember one wanker Felge. Was that me? I think so. I think I, I thought it was. I don't know for sure. I just God. assumed it was you, Wankerfeld. Um, I, I did some for uh, for my wonderful ex-wife. I used her initials and wrote under her name is Nora Kilbane. I wrote under Noki N O K I. Oh, okay. Oh. I remember Noki. So I wrote yeah. some Noki stuff. And there's some things I tried to get certain personality wise. And Tony let me do all kinds of weird stuff. Like, hey, we're going to re- review records with just haikus. <laughs> We're going to review 45s in just 45 words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, just, just drove the editors crazy, Craig did. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, because I can't spell or write. You know? <laughs> well, he would, he, would, he would describe things in what I call like a rock and roll vernacular, like a, like a Meltzer. Uh-huh. And um, you had to kind of know a little bit what he was talking about. And sometimes like 
you know, the actually the meat and potatoes of the magazine, the the really grinding work was done by Connie Renee Zorn. Yes. And and she mm-hmm. would edit some of Craig's stuff and then she'd show it to me. I go, nah, that's not what he's saying. Cause she tried to put it into proper she she was a <laughs> proper English. <laughs> yeah, she was a she was a Spanish professor at OU at OSU for a while. And uh she would try to put it into proper context, proper English, proper grammar. And I'm like, nah, go back. He spelled records, R-E-C-C-I-D-S, leave it, you know. Hey, hey, hey Tony, there's, there's actually a listener question that's on point here. Um, <laughs> and it's from Brian Young. And he asks, who was that Moo editor? Fuck, I don't envy her. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she, Is that oh, who you're talking about? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Connie. Hey, Tony, do you have any, uh, were there any artists or people that you tried to interview that were particularly difficult to to get a hold of or to interview or, or any of the above? Well, there was a couple and one I'll put into context because it was after a, a friend of his passed away, but Henry Rollins. It was right after the death of, I don't know why they set up interviews at this time. Was that Joe it Cole? Was not long, yeah, it was not long after the death of Joe Cole. So I even, you know, and Henry was very, uh, you know, he, he, he's very Henry, you know, and he was, to me, he, to me, what I interpreted, he was having a tough time. Uh, he probably would say otherwise, but I just stopped the interview. I said, Henry, you really want to do this? I mean, we don't have to do this right now, but he was cool. It's kind of like he gathered himself and completed the interview, but and again, that's my interpretation. He would probably say something different. Yeah. Now, the other one was what you would expect. Gene Simmons a kiss. Uh, <laughs> he, he was just like giving me the whole spiel that he did on every video, every interview I've ever seen. I've slept with a thousand women, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I'm just like, come on, Gene. How many, how many, if that's the case, how many diseases did you take back to your wife? <laughs> you know? And he got kind of you know grumpy and kind of you know oh, you asked him that question oh yeah <laughs> he's definitely got sound bites that he says and that's all he gives you i mean just sound yeah. bites. he actually walked out of an interview with terry gross yeah right mm-hmm. on npr uh because she called him out on the same thing she's basically you're just basically telling me little memorized phrases that oh. you know and and he got out he walked out of the room um, but did, was that for Moo or was that for Columbus Edge or something else? I think that was the Columbus Edge. Okay. I mean, it, yeah, it's in one of the issues, but I didn't include that part, of course. Yeah. But I still have, I mean, there are two big cases of all the tapes of interviews that were done. And I'm thinking, I, I'll probably never get around to it, but I would love to one day just run them raw. Yeah. Just oh, no not? editing, just, you know, put them up online, both in, um, you know, uh, both where people can read it, but maybe an audio as well to accompany it. Hey, but we'll see. Hey, Tony, that actually leads into another reader question that that we have okay. um, from D. Anthony Norris. He asks, Ooh. Tony, any thought of digitizing Moo or Columbus Edge magazine? We've thought about that many times before, and um, a couple times we've been close, but again, I just don't have the time or the resources to do it. Uh, but 
Maybe. I mean, uh, it, it's been brought up before. It's also been brought up, I think it was one time, uh, it might have been to Capo Press about uh, making a book and putting in like, as a reflection of the 90s music scene, uh-huh. putting make make some of the best bits from Moo into a book. But the guy that had that idea eventually moved on and I don't, you know, I don't know where he went. So. I want to ask Craig, so uh, Tony was saying some of the people that he interviewed, interviewed that were difficult. Uh, do you have any good or bad stories about people you interviewed? Um, ask him about Supergrass. Yeah, <laughs> Supergrass. Okay, well, what about Supergrass? Was it Supergrass or was it... what? Would, I'm trying to think, like, I wanted something to kind of rip apart. And then I ended up kind of liking it. But I'm talking to the guys and then their managers just pissed he's a, for whatever he, reason he's, he's in the interview too the manager he's there he goes yeah. i mean you know those football fields out there i'm gonna shove your face in the grass and i'm like come on out <laughs> wait okay so give some context what happened to get to that point i don't know i was just talking with the guys and he just wanted he, it to end oh yeah, he just could have just told me like you know I, and i started with a hey man i really wanted to rip your record apart but i really ended up liking it yeah huh you know and actually yeah. it was a band called space hog Oh, okay. Was it Space Hog? Yeah, it was Space Hog because they had that. They had a hit. They had one hit off in that the record. meantime. In yeah. the meantime, yeah. Yeah, the one helmet well, covered. In, in, in any case, they were British. Yeah. Craig kind of tapped into tapped into that, and they started bantering back and forth. Craig would call them limeys, and they would call them <laughs> stupid American, and it was just ridiculous. Well, they were all guys that lived in New York, separately moved to New York, but they were all from England. Yeah. Yeah. What about good good ones? Good memorable ones? that you did. You know like, what? Wow, I, I'm so glad I, I did that. I still have. I, I know I have it somewhere. I just need to find it. But I have the Dave Weindorf one. No. Oh, yeah. That's really good. I Who, love Who's Dave Weindorf? I, I Dave Weindorf? Yeah. He was the guy that put together Monster Magnet. Oh, okay. And he was in a band called Shrapnel, which was kind of like a junior version of the Dictators back in the late 70s. So Dave's okay. David David been around. And his whole story was he had an older brother that lived in the in the uh he lived upstairs from him in probably the attic you know the stoner attic yeah so what weindorf heard growing up although he's a huge ramones and kiss fan when he's a kid but when he's a real little kid he heard his brother's records all the time and it was all like proto proto metal and like Hawkwind okay and that stuff so it was was real interesting so real interesting i will i will find that thing somewhere yeah yeah it was a real interesting interview i did that with uh god somebody else chimed in too uh-huh. But I, uh, I didn't really have any, you know, bad experiences. I would just one. I had a couple stock questions I would ask. I would ask people if uh, what was more important to the way you sound, where you grew up, or what you listened to, like your record collection or your, because uh-huh. you know we yeah. we completely media completely broke away from like local scenes a lot of the time. Yeah, but I, there was I was talking to some people around here and it seems like there was in the that columbus area there was sort of a real in other people influencing each other and bringing people into kind of what they did so yeah. there was although there wasn't a data panic sound there kind of was yeah yeah our fi was low yeah 
Yeah, it seems like everybody that we've interviewed over the past and for this podcast has kind of talked about just it's the people that are around them and kind of team up because they have similar interests or like the same sound, you know, of how things are going. I'd like to bring up one point that uh, Craig mentioned uh, and you mentioned also about how people come together. But Craig was really good at trying to uh, flush out how people reacted to music when they were young. I, it was something he always wanted to find out. Was it the geography? Was it a, a sibling? Was it, you know, he really wanted to dig deep into how that person was affected. And not not in a kind of an NPR way, which is fine, but in a way that he understood that some of the people he were talking to were they intimidated by the kids that wore the short black t-shirts with the bands on them yeah. or were they one of them So for about the local music scene, I know, Craig, that you were out and about, and I've, there's many photos of you at, at different rock shows. Tony, did you hang out at like any of the local bars and, and, and see rock and roll from the local perspective? You know, uh, yes, I did, but it was coming from a different angle. Like I said, I was uh, a child of the 70s, and the first Columbus band that I just thought were the shit so to speak, were the gods. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember when the gods, first, that first album came out, we'd ride around and, well, <laughs> get a little high, uh -huh. and, you know, listen to the gods. <laughs> and uh, I don't know how, oh, I saw the gods so many times back then. Where, and, where'd, uh, where'd you see him at, Tony? Oh, geez. Uh, Al Rosa. Uh, went to Zanesville, Ohio one time to see him play with... Uh, Oh, gosh, the guy was in uh, Savoy Brown. I can't remember his name. Kim Simmons? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, just different places. Uh, one time I went to, a, uh, I think it was down around Athens. It was just a, a big biker party, and they played there. <laughs> and uh, and at the time, and, well, he's still one of my best friends, Mike Cannon, who later went on to do Salty Dog, American Dog. Right. Uh, him and I would just hang out a lot and see the gods. Um but then I started, you know, the 80s came around and I was kind of late to jump on that that wagon only because I would listen to the music, but I would never really go out to the clubs. I would go to the Newport, like I would see the Ramones at the Newport. I saw U2 early on at the Newport. I even think it was the Boy Tour, mm -hmm. um, which, yeah, U2, so what? But back then they were pretty good. Uh, you know, but I, I, I really didn't, venture too much into like stashes or any of the Kurt Schieber shows or anything like that uh, until later on. Okay. I probably really didn't start really attending those shows until after the Kurt Schieber era. So, oh. and so maybe more like when Dan Dugan took over. Are you from Columbus? No, I originally grew up about an hour and a half outside of Columbus. And before that I was in South Carolina. Okay. Huh. And Craig, are you from Columbus? No, I grew up, I was born in Ithaca, New York, and when I was 10, 
we uh, moved to a small college town called Alfred, and it is on the Pennsylvania border uh, in what's called the Southern Tier, um, which is also colloquially known as the Burned Over District because there are so many fire and brimstone preachers at that mm. time. So it's where, the Appal- it's where the Appalachian Mountains die. Huh. So you got 5,000 kids, 5,000 citizens, and 50,000 deer in the county. What brought you to Columbus then? I had a college roommate, and um, I was kind of a, I was, it was interesting because I did grow up around, you know, college professors, but then the regular hill kids, the rural kids, yeah. you know, which I drop into that vernacular every once in a while, just, uh-huh. well, now here we go. <laughs> hell, that's going to leave a mark. <laughs> um, and uh, he's like, man... Because I was in D.C. and then San Diego uh, and just really intimidated by those places. And he's like, come to Columbus. You'll be fine. Because, you know, 35 years ago, Columbus was, it'd be fine now, too. But he goes, you won't be. You'll be okay here. Yeah. And I was such a rube. I was staying with him out by the continent and working the midnight movies at the porn theater. Okay. <laughs> you know, we did you, you, the wall, whatever. Yeah. And we showed right there on Lane and High, yep. you know. Yep. Yeah. Um, I would walk there from the continent. And I didn't know I was allowed to take the bus. I thought you had to have some special privilege to take the bus. Wow. Yeah, it was called a dollar It's called a dollar bill, Craig. I know. I know I wanted to give blood for money, but when they tested my blood, they go, Something's wrong with you. Like, what do you eat? Like, well, popcorn at the theater, Coke. Plus, you can't ride the bus, kid. Yeah, I mean, it got me in pretty good shape. So how did you get involved in the local music scene like you just started going to bars around i went to uh yeah i would i would uh since that my my friend the guy that got me here was kind of familiar with campus and um i knew because i did go to college what this stuff was and what these places were because i remember driving up to buffalo seeing the guy from the Goo Goo Dolls wash bottles at the Continental in 1982, you know? Um, so I'd been to stuff before like that. But uh, dating um, Ellen Saunders at Rand Magnolias, that was the thing when she she had me start working there mm-hmm. for her. And we sold tickets for stashes so I could go to shows. So you, if you look at my ticket stub collection, I gave it all to Greg Hall. Oh, oh wow. And he's going to like... Do, do some art stuff with it okay. but you, there's like two years where it's like 1986 1987 like boom 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 and i'm looking at it going like jesus christ i saw the wipers you know yeah <laughs> yeah craig craig um or i mean kurt schieber gave us a flyer for that wiper show um that's the two guys from prison shake yeah is it really yeah it has his pickup band he might have been outside of greg again he might have been the most stoic kind of like hey okay what's going on <laughs> So, so working at Magnolia's North um, and getting your, your feet wet, I guess, with going to see some shows here in town, how did you get interested in starting a record label, Data Panic? How did that happen? Um, I think just because it was the kind of thing people were doing at the time. And I was like, did the Mickey Rooney thing. Hey, kids, let's put on a show. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, if I'd known more about what I was doing, really, it wasn't my goal to have like a successful record label. It was more of just like to try to get people known to get to the next level. Uh-huh. And after a while, it's like when you're dealing with a dozen bands with all these people and they're like, hey, you got any money? I go, dude, we just put out a 600 copies of a single. There's no, <laughs> there's no money here. You know? So after a few years, it kind of was like, okay. And basically, I went to work for a friend of mine 
in uh, North Carolina, and Chad Von Wagner kind of picked up the ball. Right. And then what was kind of cool later on, in the spirit of what it is, if you read the liner notes and the CDs, Nick Schultz started doing stuff on the Data Panic, right. under the Data Panic moniker. Yeah, if you go on the Discogs um, website, you'll see a bunch of uh, people. There's just, I think there's still stuff happening now. Yeah, often. he just. Um, but you, you mentioned like it was what everybody else was doing, or right? something like that. Who, who was there inspiring you to, to put out records like that was doing it before you? Well, at a much grander level, the uh, when I was in college, uh, sub pop was a tape, right? I remember. And that. we had we had sub pop tapes, and it was fairly eclectic in the rock realm. It was a fanzine too, wasn't it? Sub-pop? Probably yeah. it might have been an outgrowth of OP or something on the West Coast. Okay, but just Seattle is geographically isolated, so they kind of had a very their scene was kind of welded together, and he got that information out, and. Uh, I would go to clubs. I spent a summer in Washington, D.C., and I'd go see bands. I saw the Minutemen. I saw Black Flag. I saw a band called the Velvet Monkeys. Mm-hmm. Um, saw Echo and the Bunnymen yeah. in a bigger place. Yeah. I saw on one of the one of the CDs, I think, the compilations, that Data Panic, it, it says, uh, thanks for inspiration, Okra. Um, yeah. Was, was that, how did that inspire you, the um, label? I, I think that Dan found bands he liked and he put their records out in a professional way and uh-huh. he never did anything that wasn't good. Yeah. Yeah. That that was your goal? Uh, I don't know if I was really worried that much about good. I just wanted yeah. to, you know, like somebody should know that there's a band called Stupid Fucking Hippie. You know, <laughs> you know the Athens connection. I just wanted yeah. I just wanted to kind of push that that general feeling. Not like I didn't want everybody to be a clone of anything, but just what are you doing down there? Yeah. Pick, pick up your guitar and, you know, what are you doing? The first, at least three, I think, Data Panic releases were all split singles, if yeah. I remember right. Was there a, was there an economic reason for that, or a diversity reason, or what were you trying to do, or was there a reason for that? I just think because it's there's it'd be nice to put out when, when you want to doc, like as you said, document a scene, which is interesting that you said that because I just was bowled over by a record that came out a couple of years ago, the second record by Dana, mm-hmm. just bowled me over, and I wrote about like, well, you know, you're writing about. Where'd the music come from? And I mentioned like, you know, the Nuggets compilation stuff. And I go, they may not have listened to that stuff themselves, but their great grandparents did. Mm-hmm. And that is in their DNA. And that's maybe like the folkways thing or yeah. like um, just even even the early fanzines. That, that stuff I may not have been totally aware of, but I wouldn't be doing what I did without that happening. Yeah, yeah. Okay, it's in the soup. For yeah. A better word, you know. Okay. You know, this is a funny little thing. Basically, the seed money, the very original seed money for that first Data Panic single, uh-huh. my man, the guy that ran the, the porn theater, they did midnight movies, was also a bartender at the Eagle downtown. Okay, and um, consequently, some of his friends and stuff worked there. So most of the guys, the Eagle's a gay bar, right? You know, now it's just a bar, but back then it was a gay bar. You're going down there, uh-huh. so I sold acid in the gay bar. That's that was kind of how I got my seed money, and then somebody told me like how serious that was. Yeah, like dude, they could put you in jail for decades for that. 
Just for acid? <laughs> I, I thought you were going to say glory hole money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh. Literally seed money. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's probably good that both Craig and I came from, I guess you would say, rural backgrounds. Because if we had been brought up with any sense at all, we probably wouldn't have done what we did. I mean, we were uh-huh. both, I'm, I'm not really trying to speak for Craig, but we were both so... Uh, ignorant of how things work that we was oh okay this is how yeah. you do it Coming okay to the big city we just figured it out <laughs> i mean you're yeah. talking to a guy that didn't know he could take the bus Tony, um, we've been talking a little bit about uh, you know, the quote Columbus music scene. Do you, do you think that there was a Columbus scene at the time? And if there was, what did Moo play any part or Columbus Edge play any part in that? Uh, you know, the scene is a nice word. That's also kind of misleading because in every every city, I guess you could say, has a scene. But I think there was a particular time in in columbus where you know uh lightning did strike uh, a lot of labels started sniffing around which uh, major labels i should say which wasn't always a good thing but I, I i don't know when you're kind of immersed in it uh i think you get a different perspective than you would outside the bubble i mean outside of you know when you got off campus did anybody really know about what was going on um, I don't know. You know, I talked to people when I was doing move, talked to people that weren't part of the campus scene. They're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, I read your magazine because I saw an XTC review where John Stickley and Craig Regala had two sides of the record or battled it out. But as far as a local band you have in there, I have no idea who they are. Right. So everything was pretty self-contained. And, you know, in most cities, it's kind of the way it the way it happens. Um, but yeah, I just think there were so many great bands that I'm sorry I didn't get a more of a chance. Like we mentioned Pika Huss. Uh wow. What what such a great band. Um we mentioned Monster Truck Five, which, you know, they were only because of their aggressiveness and their sound, they were only going to go so far. You know, they had a, they would have like a niche audience, even if they broke out of Columbus, which they did uh, to a certain extent. So I don't know. Was that your question? Well, uh, <laughs> it was more here. like, yeah, I, you answered the question, but it was also what was Moo, what do you think Moo's uh, role was in, in the Columbus music scene at that time or, or the edge? Uh, I, you know, I think the scene would have, uh, not good with hypothetical, sorry. Um, I think the scene would exist anyway. I think Moo was just maybe like a byproduct. Uh, things were happening. Hey, here's what's happening. I don't think Moo had any impact on the bands or 
I don't think there was anybody that read Moo and thought, hey, I'm going to start a band. Um, now, I did hear Jack White used to read Moo, but I doubt if I had, you know, I doubt <laughs> that that led him to start the White Stripes. Um, you know. Well, you never know. You were just saying, you know, how influenced you were by Cream magazine, and that caused you to start a magazine. Uh, yeah, but I didn't start a band. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I think people do that, though. I, and, I, and I do think it was at least a focal point. Um, if they, that may not be the right word, but a focal point for the bands to to everybody read everybody read Moo, um, and I, I remember the Columbus Edge. No, back back by my point though, uh, everybody read Moo, who was in the campus area, right? Yep. You know, and then everybody read Moo, who was re, that revolved around the grog shop up in Cleveland. Everybody read Moo yeah. that was. Down at Sudsies and Bogarts, you know. Right. But that—that's what I'm talking about with a scene, though. You know, I think I think those those are scenes, and I think that that's something that everybody's reading, and everybody has the the same the same reference point. You know, they can say, "Hey, did you read that crazy thing Craig Regala wrote about Krabby Appleton?" And <laughs> yeah. how, how insane is, <laughs> is that? You know, or whatever. Um, or or Pat Dolls. Uh, <laughs> a dozen, you know. What yeah, cheaper it? by uh, the dozen. Yeah. Cheaper by the dozen. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, oh yeah, man, I loved that. That was my excuse to go out and buy $12 records every month and, uh, <laughs> just, go, just review dollar records all, all day long. And he's, he's not saying $12, like one, two, he's yeah, saying dollar. 12, $1 records. <laughs> right. yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was one of my kind of sort of regrets. I, I can't call it a regret, but there was very little, like if you look at Seattle, there was a lot of crossover between like rock kids Mm-hmm. and the alt kids and the punk kids. Yeah. The, the scene here was like, there really wasn't much of a... Columbus was late to the game in metal, late to the game in tattooing, mm-hmm. you know, late to the game in things. But that, that's I would have wanted to see more of that crossover. Like, I thought one of the great shows <laughs> was when the Turks played with, like, Zen Gorilla and whoever else at the El Rosa. Yeah. Because there's kids mm-hmm. went to that show just because it was at the El Rosa. Was that the hel- helicopters? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's the one thing I really wish it, I had been able to bring more of that kind of thing in, but it really didn't exist. Uh-huh. You know, and I went metal, so... Yeah, yeah. I remember, and you guys might groan, but I remember I, I liked the band Fever Smile, uh-huh. and everybody used to groan that they sounded like Stone Temple Pilots. No. But those guys in yeah, I know those guys in Greenhorn got yeah. it. They, yeah, they you know they they uh, loved playing with mm-hmm. Fever Smile. But a lot of people, since Fever Smile weren't weren't didn't cut their teeth on the campus scene, they were kind of frowned upon. And when people say they sounded like Stone Temple Pilots. I just laugh because there's no way Stone Tip Pilots have that much country in them. No, like right. Fever Smile did. Yeah. Uh, Sean Beale was writing really, really, really loud country songs. Yeah, didn't that morph into Big Back Forty? If some in some ways. Yeah, he Big Back Forty, which is more uh, you know alt country. Right. But I'll tell you, he's Sean Beale is another person who I don't know what happened, and then I heard he didn't want to go on the road, but. He should have been bigger. Yeah. His uh, his songs are great. Plus his uh, when he covers other people's songs, like he did with uh, uh, Gillian Welch's uh, Miss Ohio. Oh, uh-huh. if you listen to Sean Beale's version, it's just it's heart wrenching. Yeah. You know, um, the band that started out named The Wire, who I was talking to him about where the other Wire was from when they were kids, was Watershed, and like a lot of people like really turned their nose up at Watershed. Greenhorn didn't though. Yeah. I didn't. And one time, the guy that was kind of managing them said, hey, man, would you put out a record on Dad Panic by Watershed? I go, I don't think they, I think they're bigger than that. I don't think they need that. Mm-hmm. 
you know, they need, yeah. they're, they're at the level of like where I'm trying to get people to. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't, but they, they caught a lot of, they caught a lot of grief, a lot of guff from kind of the campusy people. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I they, mean, I'm guilty of that as well. You go to, I used to, they say it was funny. Like it's the only show I would ever go to and smell perfume. It's <laughs> 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 all that Worthington kids, yeah. Arlington kids. You know? I, I loved Watershed and I yeah. actually, I approached them to put out a single. I was putting out some singles mm. of my own at the time. And, and I remember we were going to do a single of a song called wallflower child with a, with a, b-side of uh she's tight by cheap trick and um it just fell through though we never got it never got it done but um but yeah i love watershed we're gonna try to have them on uh someone from watershed on the show here nielsen knows who he is yeah i'm sure yeah yeah. they played shows together yeah i know so Um, do the i saw elvis brothers open for cheap trick i did i saw i saw that show too (laughs) for for people that don't know the uh, the elvis brothers they're one of my favorite bands uh, of all time but um anyways uh Tony, let let me take you back for a second and and, and go back to. Uh, I think you talked about the advertising and Moo uh, and some of the political problems with it. And what what were some of the factors that might have end, resulted in in Moo ending? You know what happened there? Money was it? I mean, I was a little burnt out. Connie, I think was a little burnt out. I can't speak for her, but I, I think. And um, yeah, I mean, money. There was just the, at that particular time, and I saw it coming, print, especially music, was having more of a difficult time getting uh, substantial advertising. I mean, the, the writing was on the wall even back then, uh, especially for an independent zine like ours, like Moo. Um, yeah, it, you know, labels were starting to spend less money because they were they found out that the underground alternative whatever scene wasn't going to pay the dividends that they wanted you know uh a band like um uh what was what was, what was she was uh i can't even think of the band's name right now but uh helium helium mm-hmm. you know i think you know major labels were really expecting to cash in on helium at one point i mean not not large but to a certain extent and i'm just using them as an example yeah. and that didn't happen so you're getting uh, advertising from um, independent labels for something like Moo, which is fine, but they're not paying Moo enough to be sustainable. And then um, we would also have distributors buying uh, ad space, and they would, um, you know, include all the record stores at the bottom that included their, um, you know, included the titles that you would see in the ad. And then God bless him. Mark Chatfield. Right. Caltown Guitars. Every issue. Yeah. Every oh, issue. Yeah. People thought people thought that uh, Caltown Guitars was connected with Moo, and it wasn't. Right. I think from like it's the very just, first issue, they were full page ads. I mean, yeah. it's it crazy. Um, and I, I noticed that, that they, they changed up their ads. They even made their ads. They, they said something about Moo in them sometimes. I remember some of the ads had little puns or plays on the word Moo. Uh, Did they? Yeah, I remember yeah, that. yeah, yeah. I'll post one of them because I just I vividly remember yeah. that. Speaking, uh, well, putting. I mean, I got to say this because if I don't, I'll regret it. Because and it sounds so self-serving, but the one thing that I wanted to do with Moo was also capture like the mythos or even the fallacies of the Midwest. Mm. So we would use different imagery sometimes, like a woman 
cutting the head off a chicken or whatever. But the one thing I wanted to do, and again, this echoes back to cream was cream always had stars and cars and right. or, yeah, stars in her cars. And, you know, you'd have Joe Perry with a car that he wrecked into the a telephone pole, but then you would have, you know, somebody else with their new Corvette or whatever. And I always wanted to pair up musicians like, Kim Gordon or Thurston Moore or even Henry Rollins or any of the local guys from Greenhorn, especially with farm equipment. <laughs> like here's Dan Spurgeon holding the new steel chainsaw, you know, <laughs> or here's Kim Gordon driving the new John Deere harvester, you know, whatever. But that would have been great. I, I yeah, remember um, the gods were in cream in the, in the cream dream cars yes. and they were in a, they were a, um, a, uh, a trash dump and the, or whatever that junkyard junk, junkyard yeah. and they're all standing junkyard. on these junked smashed cars uh and i thought yeah. oh that's so that is so ohio uh, <laughs> exactly how many issues did you publish of moo um per issue do you remember uh the edge columbus edge did 31 and moo did 29 almost 30 because the next issue number 30 was ready to go to print it just never saw the light of day and it had guided by voices on the cover oh, okay and strangely enough i'm not going to take credit for it but i remember i was what i think when i was interviewing bob pollard that was after mag earwig uh. or during mag earwig and then he he, he Okay, yeah, it was during my earwig because i asked him i said oh well this frees you up to like play with anybody right and he kind of paused for a second, like he hadn't thought about it. And huh. went, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then after that, I see that, you know, he's let go of John Pet He's let go of some of the guys in the right. band, like John Petrovic, or they've had differences or whatever. Yeah. And then later on in uh, other interviews, like in Magnet and stuff, he actually came out and said, yeah, this allows me to play with different people. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. How many? I was like, oh, man, we missed that you opportunity. You know, Tony... But, allowed me to write something that was not particularly positive about Mr. Pollard. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. Mr. Pollard came out, and he had a wet spot on his pants, and he was very drunk. And <laughs> people, I was going, what kind of music can we call this? Let's call this Piss Your Pants Pop. <laughs> so he fucking read that, and he called me out from stage. Oh, yeah? <gasps> And somebody pointed at Chad Von Wagner. Because, <laughs> like, I mean, I thought they were an okay band, but I wasn't yeah. going to go see them multiple times. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Where is he? I Where is he? <laughs> That's Chad. There he is. Get him. Uh, I remember standing beside uh, Craig at one GBV, GBV show, and he kept yelling out, uh, oh, so, shoot. So, what's the name of that Genesis piece, oh. Craig? Supper? Uh, Supper's ready, yeah. Oh. It's a yeah, twenty-two minute song, and then the Jim uh, probably from Jim and GBV looked at me and goes, "Supper is not ready," <laughs> <laughs> because Pollard's a huge Prague fan, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just somehow, thankfully, he couldn't. When he got close to being able to achieve what he wanted to do, it wasn't very good. It was good uh -huh. when he kind of injected that into the classic GBV yeah. thing, right? 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 Yeah. So, um, how, how many? Uh, what was the print run, if that's the right phrase, Tony? Like, how many copies of each issue did you put out? Forty thousand, wow. maybe for for an issue. So that yeah. would be something you'd be shipping out or or, or driving out mm -hmm. to Chicago right. and everywhere. Yeah, right. it was just mainly you right. and John, was it? Who else? Uh, John would help sometimes. Yeah, yeah John. Pretty, pretty much, um, just you guys driving. Put, yeah, we all we all put like uh, our money into it, and we were just all like John Hutter was very mm -hmm. instrumental. 
and Connie and myself, we were like the three at Moo that really injected a lot of money into it. Plus some other people injected money into it too, but I won't say their names because I don't know if they want Sully their good names. <laughs> right. I don't want to sully their There's good also, names. Plus I still might, I might owe money, so I don't want to bring well, it the, up. The, but, I uh, recall there was people that owed you money uh, to show yeah. to move advertisers or whatnot. And they never, and then you, you were going to print their name in the next issue if they didn't pay up or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Greg, um, we have a listener question uh, for you um, from Mark Spurgeon. Uh, do you have any photos or memories of a band called Fork, F-O-R-Q? Um, he says the one and only, question mark, gig at Apollo's was fairly memorable because of your attempted backflip. Do you remember? Oh. You know, I think that's, I don't have anything by that. I think that was the band with Elliot Dix and maybe Joaquin de la Puenta. But um, yeah, I, I came out and I had like a big hippie bandana on and was yelling at people. And we were kind of like, we opened for Frightwig. Okay. Uh-huh. And it was kind of sub that. <laughs> sub Frightwig. You don't want to listen to anything new. Fuck you. You know, like. <laughs> blah, 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 blah. So what's this about a fl- backflip? Do you remember that? Um, I, it it d- didn't, didn't work. It was more like it was more like falling over, and it got the name, it got the nice name of trying to do something. Really, it's just kind of falling over. Um, I want to inject that kind of self-serving for me. I think this is sort of funny. There was a kid that was. There's a couple of kids out there, young people out there, that really collected the Data Panic singles that weren't from Columbus. Okay. And one guy wanted to do a whole discography about all kinds of stuff and numbers and things. He's asking me questions. I go, oh, yeah, people like number one and number 13. I did a lot of number ones and number 13s. <laughs> you know, I use those numbers a lot. Oh, you mean like one out of 600 yeah. or whatever? Okay. Yeah, I did a lot of that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I noticed actually some of the actual numbering of the catalog wasn't necessarily straightly numeric. Like sometimes it would skip from one to three to seven to whatever. Yeah. Maybe backtrack too. So it's a nightmare for collectors uh, in some ways. <laughs> and then they're like, how many did you do on colored vinyl? I go, a hundred maybe. Yeah. But what was really cool, I will say this, the initial girly machine pressing had a vat change in it. What's a vat change? Oh, that's uh, where the, the, uh, the uh, colored you, vinyl changes? Yeah. Okay. And, and the guy goes, yeah, I got some I got to throw away. Like, because they were clear, but they had like a spider web in them. I go, no, no, those are really cool. <laughs> and um, actually, somehow, I have no idea how this happened, but that Girly Machine single got to England, got to John Peel, and got played. Really? Yeah. On the BBC. Wow, mm-hmm. that's amazing. Yeah, John Peel was an incredibly influential oh. DJ um, that played all sorts of stuff. Um, and uh, wow, that's that's great. I never heard that story. Yeah. Um, there's also aren't there uh, aren't there people in Germany that crave some of those data panic things just because of the Turks? Yeah, the Turks thing really lit up. Well, you know, Tim from Crypt put that first Turks LP out, but there were mm-hmm. like 
the Turks were really, really big in Scandinavia. Like yeah. the back, like the backyard babies. I was at a photo shoot helping Chris Casello, and they're kind of like being rock stars, you know, and hanging out. And he goes, you know, that's the guy that put out the first New Bomb Turks records, and they just stopped, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and they call them the Bomb Turks. You got Bomb Turk singles? I don't, I don't have them, dude. There's like, you know, five hundred of them or whatever. But the helicopters guys, the entombed guys, yeah, you know, the backyard babies. That was a big. That was kind of a big deal up there. The 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 helicopters covered a New Bomb Turks single. I think they put out a covers album and. And they do Victoria or v- uh, Veronica Lake. Veronica Lake, yeah. Veronica Lake, yeah. Um, what did you? What was your? What were your thoughts about? I mean, you put out a, several singles that were the first singles by or first any recordings by some pretty influential Columbus bands: The Turks, Gaunt, Tom Jess, Slave Apartments. Um, all of those bands, it basically got signed to a mm-hmm. major label in some shape or form. Uh, what did you? What, what's your thoughts about that? You it's absolutely, what should have happened? I was yeah. very adamant that I was people. I would not do anything that wasn't from Columbus uh-huh. or, or Columbus focus. Like if you came up from another Ohio city, yeah. my whole thing was like art comes from here. You know, it doesn't come from Los Angeles. You know, right? It just goes to sell its ass in Los Angeles, like tuna fish and heroin. That was my thing. Like, <laughs> and that's why I have the dinosaur, dri- dri- the dinosaur, the logo, the, the Jeffrey pinnacle. Jeffrey Regensburg's son when he was seven. Drew, drew, drew the logo of Data Panic. He did. The, he did Dino, Dinosaur. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I think the influence that Data Panic and Moo had was on uh, Bela Kukenpecher. Okay. I think he picked up the ball and did did everything that was going on in this area. Yeah. For Anyway Records. Yeah. For Anyway Records. Yeah. You know, it gave him the impetus and it gave him some focus. And I, you know, pump, pumped him up. And he would he did a lot of stuff that. I think was in that lineage that I wouldn't be particularly interested in. Yeah, uh-huh. at the time. Yeah, he did a lot of like you know softer. Well, he he called softer songs on his own. He 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 was on the show a couple months ago, and he definitely credited you as being an inspiration for Anyway Records. In fact, if I remember right, the first two or three Anyway singles were kind of co. Yeah. Co- I mean, he did, he did all the work, but I had enough of a name on there. Yeah. So people, I just wanted them to catch their eye. Yeah. Actually, I had somebody draw something up for me. I don't know if we ever used it. Was a like a kid, like a kid, like the anyway kid stepping on the Data Panic logo. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that. I've seen that picture. I'll try to scan that for the Facebook. But um, what tell us about the? I think if, I, if I'm getting this right, the free Thomas Jefferson Slave Apartment 12 inch to promote the Thomas Jefferson 7 inch. Did that was all Ron House. Okay. Yeah, that was he just used <laughs> he just used the name because he did and he. Uh, Mailed him out for free. I don't know how many he did. Maybe a hundred or two. I have no yeah. idea. But yeah, he just that was all Ron. Okay. Yeah. Um. I, I remember something about you. One of the ways to get the record was you had to write in and explain why you wanted the record, like <laughs> why you deserved the record. <laughs> did you get any letters like that, or did you get any letters for Data, Data Panic? That, that was all. That, by that time, it was really just going to Ron, like those guys. Okay. You know, I didn't. I got a couple things. Yeah. You know? If anybody, anybody anywhere wrote me anything about anything, I just send them stuff. Yeah.
And then that, that leads to the to the band you were in called Clocked In. Um, yeah. Tell us about Clocked In a little bit. Um, I just really, really, really liked Black Flag. And the other guys I knew really, really liked pretty much the pre-Rollins Black Flag stuff. The only song we did that wasn't was Rollins era was My War. Uh-huh. There had been a couple more we would have might have tried. But yeah, I did that for my 50th birthday party. Okay. Yeah. And that's kind of why that exists. We probably played three or four times. There's a YouTube video of, I think, your 50th birthday party yeah. at Rivari Room? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. That was fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh. I, I, I was in tremendous pain because I would always, my, my signature was, Overalls, bare feet, <laughs> right. tank top. Oh yeah! And um, I kicked the monitor with my left foot, and it hurt so fucking bad. And that's the show. I don't know if it was that show or a show at Bourbon Street where I'm on stage during one of my other bands. And I, same same dress up, and I do my I do my toenails in in silver because it it catches the light nicely <laughs> for photographs. Um, so I'm taking my boots off and stretching, and there's this young woman in the front and she looks at me and rolls her eyes and I looked at her and I said you know something I can get to you before anyone can help you <laughs> <laughs> she had to know where she was you know you're not you know you're not watching you're not in a movie theater shit's gonna happen here and you're right in front <laughs> you're in the yeah you're in a, you're in a show um hey Tony um is there any any thought to bringing Moo or something like it uh, back in back in action or back to life? No, the uh, well, I shouldn't say no. Uh, but you mentioned before uh, digitizing Moo. That would be a project. Uh-huh. But also, uh, I would love, and it would be difficult to do just because of uh, his schedule, my schedule, and my health. Um, I would love again to do something with Craig, like a, a podcast. And I think we've even talked about this. It would be like two grumpy old men in their record collections where we just go through our record collections, both just talk about, about them, like the grumpy old men that we are and, uh, do something like that. Uh, Craig's insights are just still so, uh, spot on. I think that would be a lot of fun. I- I, I, you know, like one time in, in Moon, I remember I had a friend who was uh, a CBS A&R person and she gave us a CD and I gave it to Craig. I said, Craig, I can't, I can't review this. I mean, she's my friend. I, I, I can't do it. Uh, you know, why don't you, why don't you go ahead? And he gave it such a brutal review that she didn't talk to me for like <laughs> oh, man. a couple of years. <laughs> it was something like uh, if somebody had shit out Nirvana and then ate it or something, and oh, it was brutal. But I also I remember you were such good friends with Hannon that you gave yeah. me like the Hilljack CD, and you're like, man you know, review this and try to, you know, find something good about it. And I'm like, dude, this is perfect. This is half speed Zeke, you know, right. loved yeah. him. Loved American dog, loved him. I have an American dog sticker on the car. Yeah. I mean, that, that was, again, we were talking about different scenes and how certain, uh, I guess, bands and different genres really didn't gel. I think Craig brought that up before. And Mike Hannon was, was great. I mean, he was Eric, uh, Moore's yeah. protege, and there, people don't know Eric Moore was uh, in the Gods, bass player, and just like a, a tiny version of David Allen Coe. Oh, fucking Yahoo! Um, <laughs> yeah, and uh, 
you know, it was too bad that back in those days that separation uh, happened. Uh, from what I read online and everything, it seems like the Columbus scene is a lot more gelled now. I mean, I see people that would have never talked to one another back then, friends on social media and discussing things. And I'm like, wow, that would have been really cool if that happened yeah. back in the 90s. You know? One thing is Hannon but, did not like punk rock. But he, he well, he, he he liked it, and you got to bend the rules here. He liked Motorhead and Plasmatics, yeah, it, and he considered that kind of his. And you know rock, what? This but, is a yeah. funny thing. Uh, the way the DNA or the way the connections work, you know, like the points of connection. Um, what was that band? Uh, 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 God, that really tall woman. Like she's like six six. Nashville Pussy. Yeah, Nashville Pussy. The Turks played with Nashville Pussy, and Nashville Pussy played with American Dog. Hannon loved him. Oh, okay. Yeah. You yeah. know, so really yeah. there is there's that, but he didn't. Yeah, he was not a Ramones guy. Yeah. Wasn't that woman the Nashville Pussy like the sister of an yeah. NBA player yeah, or something? Pro pro basketball player. That scared me at Bur in the Bernie's um, yeah. bathroom. Yeah, Linda has a story. She about cornered it. me in the, in the bathroom with a pair of scissors. She's like, "Hey, you." shoves these pair of scissors in my face I'm like what did I do she said cut off my sleeves I'm like okay <laughs> and then like 10 minutes later she's That's breathing great. fire on everybody at I was Bernie. burning down Bernie's <laughs> yeah I swear my eyebrows got singed after that but uh, yeah and, and for those of you who don't know Linda's what five four, four. five four so it's kind of intimidating I remember that happening to you though <laughs> yeah it's the only time I saw a woman in that scene taller than Christine Varney right oh yeah, yeah. and I would make when I played with Christine I'd make her wear three or four inch um, heels <laughs> and then I'd be barefoot so she's like a foot taller than me oh, was that was that the band Barge yeah it's Barge Barge went on to have another name Kentucky Click oh okay Kentucky Click grew out of Barge with me and Marcy Mays Okay. Oh. The base of that. Why Why did you call yourself Barge? Because we hauled the rock. <laughs> hauled the rock. Okay. <laughs> that sounds good. The mystery word is monkey house. Hey, I have a, a listener question um, for you, Craig, from Eric Davidson, uh, an avid local waste listener. Hopefully he's he's in good health now after his accident. I think he is. I, I've seen him with a cane instead of crutches, uh -huh. so good. hopefully he's, he's doing better. Uh, he had a bike accident and hurt, hurt his hip. Um, please tell us about the first time you saw the boys from nowhere. You know, I'm trying to think. Uh, and the boys from nowhere were kind of interesting connection to, to that more... But they would play with some. They did play with some of the local bands. Uh -huh. And if people don't know, they were a really, really good um, uptick garage rock band. You know, m real muscular. Because uh, you know, he he, uh, the singer dude really liked hard rock. I mean, that's Mick Divins. Mick Divins. That's how the yeah. record collection. But he he filtered it through like. Yeah. Basically, they were like kind of like the Sonics. Uh huh. You know, and I think the f the one show that I recall is. They opened a show at the Newport when the Newport would put up a curtain. Yeah, I remember that. So mm. you weren't on the backstage. It was yeah. it was oh, like it was like turning yeah. it into a small club. Yeah, right. And they opened for I believe the last show of the Long Riders. Really? Yeah. Okay. And a couple hundred people there, but I saw yeah. them numerous times. I did with numerous yeah. bands too. Now they're on the first Data Panic single, um, and they covered the Mike Rep song. Yes. Um, uh, Rocket to Nowhere. 
Do, do, do you know how that happened? Did you ask them to do that? Cause it's yeah, a, I knew it was a ringer. I okay. knew that would be a force. Because Force Exposure, Byron Coley, all those dudes yeah. absolutely loved loved up that Rocket to Nowhere single. It was a big deal in that underground. Uh-huh. And I knew that I knew that the Boys from Nowhere could knock, knock that out of the park. Yeah, yeah. So you asked them to do that? Yeah, I asked okay. them to do that. Okay, great. And then the, the flip side was... Um, uh, Dear Richard Two hour trip Yeah right? Two hour trip Doing Dear Richard By Peter Lopner Yeah Of what band uh, Rocket from the Tombs Yeah right. Okay Here's a little bit of local lore, and I think this was uh, um, a band that got really big <clears throat> later on called Soul Asylum, mm-hmm. and they thought they were pretty big in Columbus because they had a bunch of people there on a Wednesday night at Stashes. Now, Wednesday night shows at Stashes were really popular because Dick's Den had quarter beer night. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. So, you know, you'd take a break and go over there and drink two, you know, 50 cents, a dollar worth of beer and come back yahooing it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah we're big in Columbus. We, got, we did good on a Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> and then another funny story is, uh, I think it was the Goo Goo Dolls. Um, they were on stage at Stashes and... Uh, they kicked into, and they had a pretty much like, they kind of had that soul asylum, but more regular kind of like big floppy dog guy, greenhorn fans. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Goo Goo Dolls start. Yeah. And there's an encore, they kick in to hang on Sloopy, and the whole crowd went berserk. And the band just, everybody dropped their instruments and stepped back like, holy shit, what's going on? What's going on here? What's going on here? <laughs> they didn't know? Like They the, didn't know. Uh, yeah. wow. So Tony, you, Craig already mentioned that you had a, a full-time job while you are doing this. Can you... Uh, tell us like like how much time did it take you uh, and maybe some other the, the key people that were involved but but you mainly how many extra hours did you have to work to get Moo out what I would do is sometimes I would never hardly sleep which led to health problems in my current life uh, I would maybe sleep an hour or a couple hours a night possibly because I, I just that's just the way it was if you were my schedule was work at borders and then go home and do the magazine what needed to be done and then sometimes go to a show right and sometimes i'd go hang out after a show and then i would go to work wow so yeah it was it was a full-time thing um both the magazine and work uh sometimes i would even cut my hours back at work just to get the magazine (laughs) out but yeah it was it was lower work i didn't sleep a lot Sometimes I would, and then you, the magazine would come out, and then you'd drive for a few days, and you didn't sleep that much. Sometimes you caught a few winks, winks in the van. And then um, there was always, like, once a month, I would take a Sunday or something and crash for, like, 12 hours. Uh, yeah. And then I'd be ready yeah. to go again. So I don't know how. I'd, I really, looking back, I have no idea how
That sound you hear is Don B. singing Batman, and that means it's time for the speed round questions. Yes, it is. Linda, do you have some questions for our guests? I do. Uh, My first question is, what were some of your favorite local bands of the 80s and 90s? And Tony, we'll start with you. Uh, Big Red Sun, Greenhorn, Pika Huss, Scrawl, at times, Ronald Cole. Okay. Yeah, it's a name we haven't heard yeah. too much on this show, but I think we should. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ronald did some good stuff. Uh, yeah, well, I'm sure you can get into that in a different episode. Um, I think one guy who is probably one of the most talented and overlooked people in Columbus, maybe not in Columbus, but from the people outside Columbus, Jim Shepard. Mm, yeah. I think Jim Shepard was um, amazing. I, I mean, someone um, just released a DVD, I think, of Jim Shepard in town really? here. It, it seemed like there was only a local, uh, it may have been more than a local release, but I saw used kids had some copies of this. I, I think it was in a DVD case. I don't think it was a CD. Um, but hmm, I'll, I'll, if I see one again, I'll go out there t- later today and I'll pick one up for you, Tony, if you're interested. Oh, thanks. They're relatively, that. they're reasonably oh. priced, if I remember right. So I can easily pick one up for you. And it gives me an excuse to uh, go gives... to the record store. Don't, don't, don't make it sound like you're doing him a favor, I'm doing Pat. This for t- <laughs> I'm doing this for Tony. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Craig, what do you think? What are some of your favorite bands from the 80s and 90s? You know, local bands. I would say they're not local, local, but the first time I saw Brainiac open for Greenhorn, it was just like this elevated yeah. feeling. Yeah. Just uh-huh. kicked in. Um, I like pretty much what Tony said too, but the first band I ever saw here when I visited in 1982 was Rosie. Oh, okay. oh yeah. So, you know, I like those guys a bunch for, for the rocker, rocker, Jesus priesty kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, a, a, a band that I thought were kind of cool that never, I mean, that probably most of these bands didn't record well. They just got kind of noticed, but uh, a band called the G spot tornadoes. Right. Who are like real into Jim yeah. Carroll. Yeah, yeah. You know? They're on one of your compilation CDs, right? Probably. Uh, yeah, I think on the... On the... I lent those to somebody and the guy went nuts and I don't have them. <laughs> well, let's let's get to the next speed round question before we get too deep into it, because I think you guys are chomping at the bit to say some of these things. Um, who would you consider a lost or under-recorded or under-represented or under-appreciated band from that time in the local area? Craig, do you have any ideas? No, I just think that they were well known and stuff. But I do think that if they had been had, were able to, that Pika Huss would have been a national level band. Uh-huh. I do think that I do think Agreed. they would, would have been a breakout band, yeah. and obviously the other stuff that I like. But I do think those guys would have been would have been it. And um, I don't think that Greenhorn ever recorded nearly as powerfully as they played. Yeah, I would have liked. I was talking to Nick Schultz who. Nick's kind of opinionated, if you know Nick. Yes. <laughs> and he's like, he goes, man, I'd really love to just record them live. Uh-huh. Just blast it out there, both strings on the bass guitar. Right. You know? Yep, yep. And for, and for our listeners, Greenhorn, as you, as you may know, they're our, their theme song at the very beginning mm-hmm. of the show. Um, and so you could, you'll hear, you've heard Greenhorn coming in into the beginning of this show. How about you, Tony? Any uh, under-recorded, under underappreciated, or lost bands that you can think of from the local scene back then? Well, Craig mentioned a good one, the Yips, mm-hmm. and um, I don't know if a lot of people know this or not, but there are some major music writers, critics, who consider that Yips album uh, like among their favorites. If you, I um, don't have it in front of me, but there's a couple of lists I've seen 
even recently where the yips are on uh you know like the best albums of the 90s or something wow. like that and so i think uh they were underappreciated at the time and i think they're still underappreciated and uh but there's a handful of people that seem to be rediscovering that band. Great. and i agree with uh craig on pika Haas. and one band i we i don't we haven't mentioned and i thought they wrote some pretty good songs uh they had potential was airway mm-hmm. yeah yeah uh what was that guy lizard right. mcgee mm-hmm. you know he, he he could come up with a good pop song when mm-hmm. you know at times um and then there was another guy who was um a great performer i don't know what happened to him but um he could have been big not necessarily like one of my favorite bands but definitely entertaining was wolfgang oh, right. yeah yeah, he yeah. plays. He still plays around. He's got a couple different bands now. Um, yeah, does he? Yeah, okay. yeah. And I know. I remember Moo did an article on him uh, in, in yeah. Wolfgang Park. He did sort of like a, a big band swing kind of kind of sound, but with a band with like a, like a three piece band, if I remember right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it was. It, but and he was a great entertainer. I mean, it wasn't uh, and it wasn't mm-hmm. cheesy. It was really good, powerful stuff. That I mean, at that time they could have opened for the stray cats or well that was after the stray cats but you know bands right. of that they were nature. very well rehearsed and and performed well i remember those yeah. guys yeah very so much we're, so. and of course you you know you can't you can't go and not being especially on this podcast you can't not say the media horse. you gotta you gotta say the media horse. You know? well, well we'll have to cut that part out then. but thank you tony <laughs> oh, come on now well, you were a power pop yeah i think a great thing about yeah. the media horse is it you came around to the time where the recordings were good uh-huh. like what you did came through like, that's what we wanted to like do, listening to yeah. like one of my favorite bands like sloan uh-huh you know you, yeah. you really you really got a hold of that because you were a rock band playing like you've always had a very your aesthetic to me is kind of based in classic pop structures. Right. Yep. Yep. But you can move it around in right. different volumes, different ways, but that's kind of where you come in. And they, you got a rock band to play that. I've always said that, that I think every junior high student should get the first uh, working class dog album from Rick Springfield. Springfield yeah. I think it's the perfect record. Yeah. I think every song in there is great. And probably the best song is something that doesn't get played that often, but it's, it's by uh Who's the who's the dude that re, that replaced David Lee Roth and Van Halen? Um, Sammy Hagar. Sammy Hagar. Sammy Hagar wrote a song. Oh yeah, I remember that. Record. Yeah, um, and it's it's amazing. And so please, listeners, um, go out and buy the first Rick Springfield. Well, the first well-known Rick Spring album, Rick Springfield album, Working Class Dog. It is so good. Speaking, so, speaking of Sammy, he's on that first absolutely astonishing Montrose Montrose record. Yeah, yeah. Bad Motor Scooter. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's it. Funny. Okay. Yep. yep. He, yeah, I've seen him. I've seen him play live. He's great. Um, a lot of fun. Linda, do you have another speed round question? Hey, for uh, us? Wait, uh, Tony, you're going to say something. Oh, I was just going to say, and um, I, I just kind of want to throw in there the Evolution Control Committee. Oh, I think yeah. that was uh, for you know that guy was uh, a little a little bit ahead of his time, at least mm-hmm, in Columbus. Right. I think underappreciated yeah. in Columbus, but I think he's better known outside of Columbus. Oh, he yeah, he yeah. toured yes. in the industrial circles, he lectures. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mark, Mark's a sharp dude. Generally considered the creator of the mashup, yep. I think. Um, and that the early ones that uh, that one that's yep. called Whipped Cream and Other Delights. That it's a seven inch single that mashes up Public Enemy and Herb Albert. Mm-hmm. I think is generally considered yeah. one of the first mashup records. 
So our next question, and Craig, we'll start with you. What is one local record from the 80s and 90s, local record, that you feel that everyone should have in their collection? You know, it's, from my perspective, it's really that first Turks album. Mm-hmm. Because it was the first time those guys really got a, recorded well. And they had, you know, what they say, you have your whole life to write your first record. Yeah. And those guys, <laughs> how four guys that couldn't afford socks from Cleveland could do that, you know, is astonishing. Also, like probably, well, tattoos weren't big back then, but they were just like guys. You know, uh-huh. they were they were, they were were the guys you went to school with. Right, yeah. And they were, you know, they just, just gelled. It just worked. There's an online uh, article <clears throat> about the recording of that first record in a, I don't know if this is myth or not, but apparently they they recorded. They had two days to record. Let's let's say a Saturday or Sunday, and they recorded um, on Saturday. They recorded the album, didn't sound good, and they were demoralized. And then they went back Aww. the next day and re-recorded the whole thing again, lightning in a bottle. And the guy, it, I think, it was the guy from the Ranch Hands that produced that. Uh, was his name Maraconda or something? Mike Maraconda. Mike Maraconda. Maybe? Yeah, I think yeah. he was a guy from the Ron Chans, and he yeah. he kind of knew he he knew what to do with them. Yeah, Ron Chans are a great band. Yeah, but they're a little more rootsy. But he knew what to do with that stuff, and I think he's. Yeah, I think he was part of like you can play it faster. You know? <laughs> come on, come on, right? Because yeah. you and I are lucky enough that we got to see them practice. Yeah, oh yeah. You know, and there's some st- there's some stuff there. I really wish uh-huh. that we that was recorded or video. I have a I have a tape of them doing the theme from Peanuts. Uh, the peanuts thing. <laughs> da, 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 da. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that's for all <laughs> yeah right, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, Here's another fun fact about Don Bovey. Okay. Is he uh, he would rush the stage at times. Oh, yeah. You know, and not, people, like out-of-town bands were like, what's going on here? He would not be denied. <laughs> no, um, no. <laughs> to sing Batman. Tony, what's some of the albums you think are representative from the 80s and 90s in Columbus? Well, I think uh, we talked about Jim Shepard before, and I think the album that he did for Onion should be in everybody's collection. There were songs on there that he had done before, but I think for somebody outside of Columbus, if they really wanted to hear Jim uh-huh. Shepard, I'm sorry, I can't think of the Photograph title, but Burns. it's the one that he did on yeah. Photograph yeah. Burns, yeah, uh, the one he did on Onion. I, I, I think uh, every you know, if, if you're going to own something from Columbus, that would be a great album to have. Um, also, you know, even though it's not recorded in the you know with the greatest um technological advances was that cassette by pika hus i don't know if you have that or not but i yeah. wish that had uh I, I, you know if that had may have been made in cd it maybe remastered a little bit or polished up a little bit and i don't mean polishing them commercial way but i yeah. mean just uh, getting the hiss and the there's gutter a, I out, think there are some bootleg you know? CDRs out of that cassette or running around, but yeah, is I've there? seen. I, I think I have the cassette. I have to double check on that one. But uh, for local stuff, and, Kyle at Lost Weekend has got everything. Right. Yeah. That's his. That's his. That's, that's his great. Thing, man. Yeah. Yeah. I know. And I'll mention one more that did it for me was Monster Truck Five's uh, Columbus, uh-huh. Ohio. I really like yeah. that CD. They just yeah. um, uh, closed down the the TJ's restaurant here, and uh, that's about three blocks away from here. And they moved it down, uh, actually closer to our house mm-hmm. now. But that TJ's sign, if I remember right, is the Columbus, Ohio ar- artwork, right for the for the um, yes, yes, it is for Monster Truck Five. The uh, the the company that bought that said they're going to keep that there. The, oh, the oh good. Yeah. It's that chicken restaurant, the Christian Chick- chicken restaurant. Chick- 
Yeah, Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A. I always say, I always yeah. say Chick-fil-A, yeah, and yeah. I know that's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but they said that they would keep that there. Okay, well, I, that's one good thing about probably, Chick-fil-A. Then. Probably taking the building down, because they're going to put it that in an oil change place there. Like, yeah. we need another oil yeah. change place. <laughs> All right, the next speed round question is, what is the first local show you remember seeing, and at what venue? Tony. Mm. I would say Willie Phoenix, probably at Bernie's. Same here. That's that is a very common theme. Yeah, uh, people have that memory. It's just because it's so memorable. Probably, did he walk on the tables for you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, of course. <laughs> you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna be very vulgar here, but but I don't know if everybody knows the joke, but the joke was Willie's taller on his back than he is on his feet. So, um, he, uh, oh, he um <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Uh, I'm not witness yeah, to that. It was, uh, <laughs> like I said, I got in 1982. I saw Rosie, but the first campusy show probably was Willie too. Um, okay, last speed round question. Great. So, what is your favorite memory of a show at a local venue? I would say it would be that it would be that Brainiac show because I didn't really know anything about him that much. It's like I went to a house show on campus just a a couple months ago and saw a band that I didn't know anything about. That's kind of like a 68 to 74 San Francisco early Fleetwood Mac kind of bunch of young guys. And it just, just killed me. Like there's certain things I've seen a bunch of times, but you know what you're going to come into. Uh-huh. Like uh, there wasn't a Turk show. I didn't go to it. I didn't have a great time. Yeah. One time I did actually, I don't know where they were playing, but I got, up and away from the stage so I could actually see them play and mm-hmm. hear them play. Because really, when you're in the front, you don't really. Yeah. Plus, like, I, they, I'd irritate Eric. I'd always untie his shoes. <laughs> <laughs> and the dude wore like old man shoes. Right. Like, like, like tie old man shoes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No support. No, no support. No, dude. <laughs> Attending a show with Kirk Regala is an adventure yeah. in itself. <laughs> well, one, you don't know if he's going to jump down, spring up and, from the ground. Well, there's a lot of those Jay Brown photos that you're in. Yeah. yeah. In the front row listening. Probably, yeah. Yeah. We we posted one just the other day and we're going to repost it when we do the Facebook. I have one that is really great. Very, I think, I think one thing about the scene and shows here is like a lot of people went to a lot of different shows. You know, it wasn't like, it wasn't sectarian enough. I mean, people Mm. would go see, I'd go see a hardcore show. I'd go see, you know, scrawl i'd go see the yips like to me it was the same there's no you know kind of thing and um i remember there's a picture of me at uh mr brown's okay and i have a t-shirt that there used to be a a thing called z-rock okay z-rock was broadcast out to different stations and it was a metal show gotcha and i had a z-rock t-shirt on with no sleeves of course Uh and then my friend sean maholic long curly hair had a black sabbath shirt on and then John Backstrom had like a meat man shirt on and spiked blonde hair. And there's the three of us just yeah. kind of circle pitting. And I just remember that kind of stuff a lot. It wasn't like. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there was seem like a lot of people cross, I don't know, pollination. Like mm-hmm. people would just go and see every, everything. You know, I remember stashes as being sort of a hangout place that you just kind of went to. Yeah. You know, and it didn't, you know, it mattered who played, but you went regardless of who played, I think, a lot of the times. God, I do remember, I think it was Bridey. Um, played in a, a couple good bands, a young, young kid playing in basically kind of hard, nascent hardcore bands. She's just so into it. She would actually bring clippers 
to shows and shave people's heads. Oh, <laughs> that's so good. That's hardcore. Yeah. <laughs> Tony, do you have a memory of a favorite show at a local venue? Uh, well, yeah. Uh, like I mentioned before, I kind of did come at it from a different angle in the beginning because I'd go to shows like at Vets Memorial or wherever uh, on campus where the pretenders came through town for uh -huh. the first time. Wow. Well, that was a good show. Or Ian Hunter at Vets Memorial or or there used to be a place outside of Chicago or outside of Columbus, about an hour away, called Legend Valley, where they hold these great big out. The Nuge. Yeah. And that, yeah, the Nuge, Cheap Trick, the Cars, Todd Rudgren. Uh, they'd have a country one, Willie Nelson, and a lot of different people. And, you know, I was still in high school or just some amount, just out of high school. And, uh, Ozzy Osbourne, Motorhead, and Kicks <laughs> at Best Memorial. The loudest show I'd ever been to until I went to uh, uh, the Screaming Trees, the oh. Stalin show at Stashes, where people were standing outside because it was so loud. Wow. People were standing over across the street because it was so loud. Uh, uh, so there was a lot of that. But then uh, locally, uh, Jim Shepard always blew me away when he played. Pika Huss always blew me away when they played. The Turks. Uh, Greenhorn, when they first announced that they were breaking up and they supposedly played their last show yeah. at Stashes, that place was just crazy. Yeah. I mean, everybody, everybody who was anybody to use a cliche was there, and everybody was just, you know, how you did the Greenhorn bang your head slowly, <laughs> rocking back and forth thing. Yeah. The uh, Dan Miller hustle. Everybody did it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <sighs> So that was good. Uh, but, you know, it, it, my experience in Columbus was actually seeing national bands and then discovering uh -huh. the local scene. I'll tell you one show that had a big impact on me was I saw the Bleach Tour for Nirvana. I thought they were good. Okay. But yeah. then I, Craig Regala, could not get in to see the, the Teen Spirit Tour. Wow. Uh -huh. And I'm looking around going like, what the hell's going on here? <laughs> and then... I went to see Brainiac and I saw a bunch of really well-dressed young women. I'm like, oh boy, when the girls start showing up, because they yeah. listen to the music, you know? Right, when yeah. the girls show up, it's, it's. I think I remember Matt Reber saying in the Turks saying like, yeah, we knew we were kind of doing okay when I saw girls in the audience that weren't our girlfriends or our sisters. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think he might have told me the same thing. I yeah. remember that, that, that quote. So do either of you remember a just a show that you can't believe you just saw what you saw? Like, was there any? There was a show at Stashes, and it was when the breeders broke. And that place was packed, and it was it was kind of one of those, I don't know what, you know, hey, you have those magical yeah. nights. That was one of those magical nights where everybody was just there having a good time. It was packed. That and the uh, urge overkill, right when that uh, their big album was starting to break, the one with Sister yeah, Havana on it, mm -hmm. Havana on it, yeah, yeah, saturation, yeah. Uh, same thing. That was a magical night. That was crazy. Guitar Wolf at Burnings. Uh -huh. I, w I mean, I didn't know what to expect because you know, Guitar Wolf. How many times did you see Guitar yeah. Wolf live? And then there was a crazy night out in Gahanna where it was the Cheater Slicks, the Turks, and the Red mm -hmm. Ants. Yeah. They played some club out in uh, the Hanna. That was a crazy night. Yeah, I didn't expect that, but I think yeah, that yeah. answered your yeah. question. Craig, anything for you? I got popped in the nose at one of the clocked in things. And I, I've been like, I got a, a weak nose. I've been bleeding forever. 
And I wiped it off on my hand, and I put my hand in the audience, and this girl licked the blood <gasps> off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd say that qualifies. Uh, hey, there is also uh, one other show I have to mention, and I'll regret it if I don't. But it was one of the last time. it might have been the last time, that the Cramps mm-hmm. played the Newport, and Lex and Terrier took his mic stand, busted a hole in the floor, crawled under the stage, and then came out of the uh, the came out of you know the, the Newport stage was about about four feet high, but then came out of the bottom of the stage. Yeah. Broke his way oh out. my god! Now I talked I, to I talked to a couple of people that night, and they're both worked for the Al Rose, and they're like, "Nah, that plan he the band paid for it. It's all right." And the other person who was a little bit higher up said, yeah. "No, Scott wasn't." Yeah, I, I've Scott heard that story him. too, and I I've heard that yeah that that was not planned. That's just something that <laughs> you know did. I got one too. I need to throw in the mix um, because the club was not expecting this. They didn't know what to expect. It was uh, at the Newport Einzende Neubauten. Okay. And um, oh. they had done stuff like went out and just did salvage operations. They had like a, a metal shopping cart they mic'd up that they were throwing around. Yeah. yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. This is this is not this is not something that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That um, because nobody they didn't know. It's just hey, right. some other alternative band that's and Tim Ansett likes. And t- let's mention Tim Ansett being very important for bringing national yeah. and international bands mm-hmm. through Columbus. I mean, this is that Cocteau Twin show was it really people it was on the news they were right. like how where are these people come from like oh, it's every hairdresser in ohio you know <laughs> <laughs> i do want to give one more shout out here before i forget and um the record's good but they were great live was eric's mother mm, yeah mm. oh yeah scary man yeah, tara, tara stockdale loves those guys she mentioned them when she was on the show and uh i saw them and i remember the guitar player i think had a police siren or fire siren taped to his leg and it played it was it was just this blinding flashing light air, the whole show it's like oh my god i think he breathed fire too i think the singer breathed fire or something sang through a yeah, microphone and he used the, i mean at first yeah, he was, yeah at first i thought they were just oh these guys really like the butthole surfers right, yeah but, but their music was just so dark At Lost Weekend Records, complacency is not in our DNA. So, after setting the bar for music shopping, there was only one thing left for us to do. Raise the bar. Raising the bar at Lost Weekend Records involves the tools that make record shopping feel like second nature. From small 5-inch CDs to medium 7-inch 45s on up to big 12-inchers. The out-of-this-world audio quality available only at Lost Weekend Records makes every trip a tailored experience designed to be like no other because it is like no other. Records from Lost Weekend are simple and ready to use right out of the box. Just plug and play. Trust Lost Weekend Records, the leader in Columbus record stores. And we're still raising the bar. Learn more at lostweekendrecords.com or visit us on the Facebook. And we're
we're back. And now it is time that every guest of Local Waste Music dreads. It's the <laughs> trivia question for our guests, where we ask you a question that uh, goes delves deep into the history of your of your endeavors here in Columbus to see how well you may know your own past. Um, Tony, you're going to get the first of two questions, and then Craig will get two questions. Um, Tony, um, the cover of the final issue of the Columbus Edge from December 1993 features the new bomb Turks sitting with Santa Claus. Who plays Santa Claus in the photo? Ron House. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. You're correct. Ron House is Santa Claus. That was That's sounds like Jay Brown. Jay Brown photo, I believe. Jay Brown photo. Sounds like you. That, that, that my question is too easy for you. You got you got it right away. Um, Craig, your first trivia question. In your magazine, Crocodile, issue number one, you sort of interviewed a member of the Royal Crescent mob. Who was it? Probably David. It was David Ellison. Yeah. Yep. Ding, ding. Do you remember why I said, do you know why I said sort of interviewed? Mm-mm. Uh, because you <laughs> forgot your tape recorder oh. and you just kind of winged. I just wrote it down. Yeah. You just kind of winged what you said, <laughs> what was said. And it wasn't in depth. It was not an in-depth interview, but it was pretty funny. Uh, cause you, 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 you fessed up to, to, to fucking up. <laughs> uh, I'll print that in there in the Facebook page so people can see it. Tony, your second uh, trivia question. Moo Magazine published lots of articles um, uh, of lo- with featuring local bands. You had three local bands, three Columbus bands, that had their picture on the cover of Moo. I'm sorry, four Columbus bands that had their picture on the cover of Moo. Name three of those four Columbus bands that had their picture on the cover of Moo. Uh, New Bomb Turks. Correct. Scrawl. Correct. V3. Correct. You going for four? And is there a fourth one? I know there was three almost all together. There is a fourth one, but you've already got that. You've already got it. You, you, okay. you win this one. No. Ding, ding. But the fourth one was Gaunt. Hmm. Oh, that's right. also had yes. Gaunt. Yep. Yes. Very good. Two out of two. Excellent. That's a, that's a band we forgot to bring up. Yeah, yeah. Well, we they they did the split single on Data Panic yeah. with that, and you did another single with them too. I think Fielder's Choice was that mm-hmm. the one? Yeah, I think so. I don't know. I don't own any of that stuff. <laughs> Truthfully, I don't. I don't have any of it. Who who put out the Jim Motherfucker? Was that Bela? That was the split. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. That's the one we were talking about that was on anyway, but also Data Panic. Yeah, that's when I was oh, okay. lending him the name just for publicity's sake. He did all the work. Craig, your second and final um, trivia question, and we already mentioned it, sort of. On YouTube, there's a video of your band clocked in playing your birthday party at the Rivari Room. What song does the band clocked in start the show with? Uh, my War. My War is correct. Ding, ding, uh, ding, ding, ding. You. Uh, this is one of the very I, few times, no, Linda. Got them all right. I must be slipping on my questions because these seem to be very easily answered. But congratulations, both of you. And I want to thank both of you. Yes. For, well, thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. I hope we had fun. I hope you had a, a, a time, a, able to express yourselves and got to say things that you wanted to say. I hope. Yeah, and you guys are doing... You guys are doing an amazing job on these. Uh, I've listened to some other ones. And oh, thanks. It's, it's really entertaining, and it's very informative. 
Wow, that was another great episode, Pat. Yeah, really good episode. Hey, what'd you learn from this episode, Linda? Uh, I, I thought it was an amazing that Tony put out Moo Magazine, and probably the Columbus Edge before that, but specifically we were talking about Moo, um, did all that work, and he was still holding a full-time job. Um, it was just, it was amazing that he did that. And hey, he uh, he wanted me to add that um, he, he didn't do it alone, and we all know that. There was a lot of uh, writers that contributed. Yeah, and he also wanted to mention, he didn't say this on the air, but he talked to us afterwards. He wanted to mention that he didn't do it alone. Uh, he did it with a lot of other people, and he especially wanted to uh, remember Melissa Cooper and Meredith Melrigan. And also the guys in Moviola, uh, Jerry, Ted, Jake, and Scotty, he said they were very instrumental in helping him put out uh, Moo, uh, yeah. Moo Magazine. And he also wanted to mention Moviola as being a great band as well. Mm. Um, they didn't get mentioned during this episode. So what did you learn, Pat? Well, I learned that Tony drove his copies of Moo Magazine all over the tri-state area, Chicago and Indianapolis, and delivered them in his trunk. <laughs> I know, car, uh, and and basically had an hour's sleep a night. He said, uh, "Again, that just kind of piggybacks on what you said. That was mind blowing, really, really dedicated work to get that out there, and it's, it's amazing it lasted uh, as long as it did." And yeah, we um, we appreciate it. It was an amazing magazine. Yeah, um, and hey, that actually wraps up the tenth episode of Local Waste. <gasps> that's right. It's our yes. anniversary, Linda. And that's crazy yeah. as we planned, that's the first season of. Uh, local waste music podcast 10 episodes first season mm-hmm. and so we're probably going to take a little bit of a break um, mm-hmm. we'll come back in a month or so with the second season of 10 episodes right and our overall goal ultimately when we were first talking about this linda was that we would have 20 episodes total um and then we might have some more here and there after that but it, two seasons of 10 episodes each sounds yeah. like a good goal for us so yeah we're at the halfway point and we're really happy how it's been turning out yeah and uh you know like pat said we're we there's a lot of people we want to interview and uh it's getting a little uh busy here in the summer months and uh so we're having both our schedules and well as our guests that we'd like to have on schedule too so uh we do have a lot of great people planned uh, and we're going to get them scheduled so you can hear them. Yes. And Linda, can you tell people again how they can find the visual component of our podcast? Yeah, we're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Local Waste Music. I'd like to thank all the bands that we heard on the episode today, Greenhorn at the top of the show and Jenny Mae that you're hearing right now, and also the other bands that we heard throughout the show, either th- whether they're on Data Panic or other local bands that were mentioned. I'd like to thank all of them. And I'd like to thank you for making this first season very enjoyable, Linda. Had a great time oh, so far. Oh, Pat. Yeah. I, wow. So anyways, everybody, we will see you all next season. Bye. Bye-bye. We slapped it together with paper and paste. We hope you enjoyed our show, Local Waste. We hope you enjoyed our show, Local Waste.